Let's read our scripture together for this morning. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. You may be seated. It was the 19th century uh, Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard who, who once said that, that most people really and mistakenly believe that the biblical commandments... Uh, for example, to love one's neighbor as oneself, to, to forgive those who have sinned against us, are intentionally severe. Uh, on a par with setting the, the clock ahead a half an hour so that you're not late to work in the morning. Uh, the scriptures we are considering this morning certainly may belong in that category. We're, we're going to be considering verses 12, 14, and 15 together this morning. But before we directly engage those verses, I want you to think with me about verse 12, which is, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'd like you to think with me about that in a, in a bit broader context. And let's begin with this, that as Christians, we live by forgiveness and we stand in grace. We live by forgiveness and we Standing grace. By the way, uh, I don't encourage you to take notes this morning. There's this form in your program. Uh, this is not going to be a light teaching this morning. Uh, we're going to strain your brain a little bit this morning, I hope. Uh, if you're engaged, it'll strain your brain. Um, but uh, I would encourage you to take notes. So back to this. As Christians, we live by forgiveness. We stand in grace. If, if you have your Bible this morning... Um, Please open it or turn it on, whichever case may be, and go to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Romans is the sixth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's a lot in that verse, those two verses. But Paul says, first of all here, that we have been justified by faith. We've been justified by faith. In the previous chapter, chapter 4 of Romans, Abraham is pointed to as kind of the poster child for justification by faith. In fact, from Genesis, where his story first appears, right on through the New Testament, uh, that is true of Abraham. Uh, the classic statement regarding him is that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, reading the story in Genesis, what we see about Abraham is that is that God called him. We've never met Abraham before. All of a sudden, God calls this guy named Abram from a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sands of, of the, on the seashores. I'm just going to bless you, Abraham. And um, wow, you know, 
you're that guy. And, he, and, and it just says that Abraham believed God. He accepted what God said, and he acted on it. Fast forward to 2018, today when, when anyone believes in Christ and acts on it by putting his or her faith in, in what Christ accomplished on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, it's counted to them as righteousness as well. You believe God, you act on it by trusting in Christ. If Jesus had not borne the penalty of our sins on the cross, if that had never occurred, our, our sins could never be forgiven. We would never have the hope of eternal life. We would have no relationship with God except for a relationship of enmity, of wrath, of distance. But because Christ did die on the cross as our substitute for our sins, notice what Paul says is true of those who put their trust in in that accomplishment at the cross. God declares us justified. It's It's a legal statement. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's an easy way to remember what that word means, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. He, he forgives the sin, and he wipes, our, he wipes our record clean. And as a result, he says, we have peace with God. Where once there was hostility, where once there was enmity, where once there was wrath, we have peace with God through Christ. We who have been hostile toward God, we who have been sinners, we who are helpless, to save ourselves, are reconciled to him through the blood of Christ. And then we stand there in grace. Our standing before God is entirely grace. Nothing we ever did to earn it, nothing we ever did to deserve it, nothing we did to merit our salvation. We stand in grace. The psalmist wrote, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? Paul says we stand in grace. And we're able to stand in the presence of the Holy God because we are justified by faith. We're reconciled to God. And because all that is true, we rejoice in the hope of God's glory, which is another way of saying that we have the hope of eternal life. And it gives us joy in this life. Next, please understand this morning that Christ's forgiveness of our sin is complete and comprehensive. It is complete and comprehensive. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is pictured as our high priest. And if you're not familiar with that, you you may understand the, the Jewish temple in ancient times There were constant sacrifices for sin, for the sins of the people. And and the book of Hebrews points to Jesus, says Jesus is our high priest. Now listen to what the writer says. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, beginning at verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service. Notice that word stands. Stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Would you just pause there with me for a moment? Would you think about that? In ancient times, in the temple, uh, sometimes I've read that 
in, in some of the ancient documents that blood would just run in the streets of Jerusalem from the Temple Mount. There was that much blood being shed. And they stood there and repeatedly offered the same sacrifices every day. And the writer here says, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, which means the work was finished. No longer standing offering sacrifice. He, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's forgiveness of our sins is complete. It's comprehensive. John 19, verse 30 tells us that in Jesus' final moments on the cross, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And you've heard me say, if you've been here a while, that's one word. It wasn't three words, it is finished, but it was one word. And that one word that Jesus uttered that's translated in English, it is finished, also was used in the marketplace so that when you paid a bill and it was paid in full, if there was a rubber stamp in those days, it would have that word stamped on it. To Tetelestai, to Tetelestai, paid in full. And that's the word that Jesus uttered as he died. The Apostle Paul captured this same truth in his letter to the Christians in the city of Colossae. He wrote, he forgave us how many of our sins? All our sins. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Notice those two words, legal indebtedness. Paul's speaking in, in legal terms here. Jesus canceled a charge against us of legal indebtedness. We had a debt to God. And Jesus at the cross canceled it. That charge against us condemned us. He has taken it away. The fifth petition that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer is here in Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We were legally indebted to God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So when you think about this for a while, a problem arises. If Christ's death covered all of our sins, past, present, and future, as it clearly did, and, and, and if God's verdict justifying the believer is eternally valid, as it is, why then do we need to seek God's forgiveness for our daily sins? Why is that? And I think the answer lies in distinguishing between God as judge who hands down a verdict declaring a sinner justified 
And God is Father, who because we have believed and received his Son, Jesus Christ, adopts us as his own children. We saw earlier in this series that Jesus taught his disciples to to address God as their heavenly Father, our Father, hallowed be your name. And it was radical. And it was new. It would have been shocking to the disciples to hear a rabbi say to them, address God as your heavenly Father. So the Lord's Prayer is a family prayer in which God's adopted children, you and I who have trusted in Christ, address him as our Father, Abba, Daddy. Now think about this. Every family, yours and mine, is made up of sinners who fail in many ways every day. Have you noticed that? Maybe your family's different from mine. In a healthy family, uh, those, those failures are not generally regarded as grounds for being rejected from the family. Am I right? Uh, but what is needed in our ongoing relationships in our families is to own the moral responsibility for our failures, for our offenses, for the hurts that we inflict on others, for the ways that we fail them, which involves understanding how what we have done or not done has hurt another family member, and it involves expressing regret for that and asking forgiveness. It's, it's relational house cleaning, sometimes called keeping short accounts. I was a little bit of a hard-nosed dad. You know, when one of my children offended brother, sister, mom, or dad, uh, I had this little thing I would require them to do. I would, I would require them to say three things. What they wanted to say was sorry and move on, right? I required them to say three things. I, first of all, I am sorry. And then secondly, I was wrong. And then third, will you please forgive me? And in saying what they were wrong about, they would, I would require them to say, what were you wrong about? Dad! What were you wrong about? Dad, come back here. What what were you wrong about? State it. And the same principle applies in our marriages, doesn't it? And in our friendships, even 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 in our workplaces, if you think about it. We own our moral responsibility for the offense. And in the same way, but on an infinitely higher scale, our our daily failures do not change our status with God. We don't lose our salvation. Our justification is not revoked. We're not booted out of the family of God because our Heavenly Father says, there you go again. Nevertheless, things will not be right between us and our Heavenly Father until we've done the same kind of relational house cleaning with Him. This is at the very core, it's at the very essence of what it means to have a personal relationship with God 
as our Heavenly Father. John captured this very clearly in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, where he wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I mean, isn't that funny when someone says, I don't have any sin? You laugh at them? We deceive ourselves. You say, well, you say to that person, you poor person, how deceived you are. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are a couple of words there I want you to understand. The word confess is homo logeo. It means to say the same thing. So to confess our sins is to say the same about our sins that God says about them, that, that they separate us from him, that they create a relational barrier. Same thing happens in our families, in our relationships. When we sin against someone, it creates a relational barrier. It's sin. We agree with God about the sin, about our ownership of it, about the impact it has had. And then when we do that, Good news, God is faithful. God is just. He forgives us our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the word unrighteousness is the other word I want you to see because righteousness means to be in a right relationship with God. It's a relational term. You think We talk about the, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that is in God himself. We're talking about the perfect relationship of God to himself, his perfect integrity. We talk about our relationships. It's being in a right relationship with each other. And here's, the, here's what happens in relationships. If I offend you, if I sin against you, and I don't own the moral responsibility, if I don't allow it to affect the way I feel and think, and then I ask your forgiveness, and then I do it again, which I'm apt to do, and then I do it again, which I'm apt to do. And, and, and that just accumulates. The, the barrier grows larger and larger, doesn't it? So see, the problem in, in, with our sin is not on God's part. He doesn't move. He's perfect. He never changes. He loves us perfectly. In Christ, we're forgiven perfectly. He's not changing. We're changing. And, and that wedge just gets in between us. That, that's what that whole idea of unrighteousness is. It's all that stuff that builds up in our relationship on our end between us and God. It's like if you, if, if you ever have a dead battery, it's because you left your lights on all night or you know something like that, and you drained the battery. The, the other possibility is that you haven't cleaned your battery in a whole long time. And, and sludge builds up in that engine compartment on the top of that battery, and, and, and eventually it shorts out the, the connection between the two posts. And I think that's a great picture because it, when we think about unrighteousness in the context of 1 John 1, 9, it's sludge that builds up in our relationship. It's, it's unacknowledged, unconfessed sin. And all of that is important for us to consider as we come to the petition in verse 12. The Bible treats sin from a variety of angles. It's a lot of pictures of, of, uh, of, of sin in the Bible, law-breaking, 
deviation, shortcoming, rebellion, pollution, missing the target. Sin is always all these things in relationship to God. But on this occasion, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he wanted his disciples to view their sins as unpaid debts. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, we're a nation of debtors, aren't we? Millions of Americans are on the verge of bankruptcy, buried in unpayable credit card debt that compounds every month with increasing interest. They all need to go see Chris Ross and go to the financial peace class. There's the problem of school debt. Maybe you've read about, read about that. It is often running into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for a student. It's become a national crisis. Some people are, are near retirement before they've paid off their school debt. Even the federal government, have you re- heard about this at all, is, is in deep debt that's soared into trillions of dollars. And yet we, we Americans, we just kind of view debt as, as, as an annoyance, not as a moral issue, which it is on several levels. But in the ancient world, it was punishable by imprisonment. In the Roman Empire, apparently, at least what the scholars that I've read say, the, 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 the largest part of the population in Roman prisons were not criminals, but debtors. Most of the time, convicted criminals would have been executed or you know, severely punished or sent into hard labor. But those who couldn't pay their debts were incarcerated until their families could pay what they owed. Kind of counterintuitive, right? It just seems, okay, so we're going to imprison the breadwinner and just ask the rest of the family to, to pony up. I, I don't know how that works. But, but obviously it would put tremendous pressure on the families. And if they couldn't pay, oh, well, that person died in prison. So Jesus' disciples would have understood his use of the word debts as implying a serious offense that if left unpaid would be accompanied by serious punishment. Sin is likened to a debt because it deserves to be punished. In the Roman Empire of the first century, then to be forgiven that debt was no mere trifle. It was an act of extravagant mercy. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some of your translations will say 70 times 7. The traditional teaching of the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, was uh, that an offense should be forgiven up to three times and then punished on the fourth. I can imagine Peter asked to use the word brother, so I'm just thinking about my brother, right? And he's annoying me. That's one. That's two. That's three. Boom! Right? That's the way I would think about that. 
So Peter may have thought that he was being particularly generous, magnanimous, by offering to forgive his brother seven times. And Jesus' answer would have come as quite a surprise because I think Peter was kind of kissing up at this moment anyway. And Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. Jesus' implication is that our forgiveness should be perpetual and total, complete. Seven is the perfect number in biblical terms. Richard and Tina Aiken were married on 7-7-17 at 7 p.m. They're coming up on a year, right, Tina? That's what she wanted because seven is the perfect number. The Greek word translated forgive means literally that I release the debt, I release the debt, and then I release whatever resentment over the debt I may have been harboring in my heart. So after that brief little interaction with Peter about forgiving 70 times 7, Jesus taught this parable that has become known as the parable of the unforgiving servant in verses 23 through 35. Follow along as I read. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So not only did he have to liquidate his assets, he he and all his family were sold into slavery. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, let's very quickly do some math. If you're using one of our paperback ESV Bibles, uh, at the bottom of the page underneath this parable, uh, you'll read that a talent represented in those days an average 20 years wages for a laborer. 20 years. And it says that 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 first servant owned 10,000 talents. 10,000 times 20, I think, is 200,000 years. Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. 200,000 years. A price he could never hope to pay, could never imagine paying. 
pretended he could. The second service servant owned a hundred, owed a hundred denarii. A denarius represented a day's wages. So the first servant had been forgiven a debt that could only be repaid in 200,000 years. That's a long time to be in prison. But he would not forgive the second of a debt that he might have been able to repay in three months. Forgive us our debts emphasizes our most urgent spiritual need. See, Jesus told this story, and he created it. Uh, His intention, I'm sure, was to illustrate this incredible discrepancy between the magnitude of the debt that we owe to God in contrast with the debt that others may owe to us. As sinners in rebellion against God, against his son Jesus, you and I stand before him condemned, rightly deserving the wrath that justice requires. Only his forgiveness can clear our guilt set us free, establish a new reconciled relationship between God and us. Someone aptly said regarding the sacrifice that Jesus offered at the cross for our sins that Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We sometimes think that this means that God forgives and forgets. You heard that expression? Just forgive and forget. Hard to do, isn't it? Forgive and forget. The forgetting part is really hard. And that's what makes the forgiving part even harder. But that's not what this passage means at all. That's not what Jeremiah was saying. God knows every sin I have ever ever committed. God knows every sin of mine that he's ever forgiven can't imagine what that number is. He will always have that knowledge. It'll never be wiped off God's hard drive because his knowledge is perfect and immutable. When the Bible speaks of God forgiving our sins, it doesn't mean that he forgets them. It means that he remembers them no more. That's what it says. What that means is that he will not remember them against us anymore. Though he's fully aware of our transgressions, fully aware of our failure, he's fully aware of our sin, our iniquity, whatever word you want to use, he doesn't remind us, he doesn't call them to mind, he doesn't hold them against us. And that's the essence of forgiveness. And that's what we're called to imitate in our relationships in this world. When I say to someone, I forgive you, I'm making a commitment to that person never to bring it up again and never to hold their offense against them again. So see what incredible discipline is required in forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an event for us human beings. Forgiveness is, first of all, a choice, a calculated, reasoned choice that I release you from the debt that you owe me because of your offense against me, 
I make that decision, and then every day I keep making that choice. Every day. It's a choice, and it's a process. So to pray this petition is to pray the gospel. It's a gospel prayer. First of all, it establishes that we're sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Second, it teaches not only that we've sinned, but also that that we have the hope of forgiveness. It's because of the gospel that, that we can come boldly into the presence of God, the holy God, for forgiveness. Third, Jesus teaches in this prayer that God is willing to forgive sin, something that somehow we forget or somehow we want to argue with or somehow we become convinced is not true. Romans 3, 23 and 24, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And most of us memorized that and stopped at at the end of the glory of God, right? And all are justified freely, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God declaring us righteous, God imparting his righteousness to us, clothing us in his righteousness, and embracing us because of Christ. The psalmist, Psalm 103, saw it hundreds of years earlier, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. A 16th century Puritan, Richard Sibbs, is famous for this that he once wrote, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Isn't that good news? I think that's good news. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Fourth, this Jesus teaches us in this prayer that having been forgiven, the gospel must become the motivator for for our conduct in every relationship. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's that's also the, the point of the parable of the unforgiving servant. The mercy and the grace that was shown to that first servant by his master to to whom he was hopelessly indebted should have produced in him a heart of mercy as well. But his behavior toward his fellow servant who owed him much less indicated that that lesson hadn't taken. And the master changed his mind and threw him into jail. And the closing line of the parable echoes Jesus' words in verses 14 of Matthew 6, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Are you uncomfortable at all with that yet? That's good. See, Jesus' words on forgiveness are are clear. Without forgiving others, we will not be forgiven. But we have to be careful in how we interpret what Jesus said here. 
What do I mean? Jesus didn't teach them to pray, forgive, forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors. It's not what he taught. Our being forgiven is not predicated on our forgiving others. If it was, that would make the basis of our acceptance with God our own works instead of his grace. But the basis on which we are forgiven is never our own works. Scripture is very clear. We're justified before God by faith alone, through grace alone, and not by works of the law. Instead, Jesus taught them to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The difference between those two phrases, because and as, as we shall see, is the difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and no gospel at all. We need to understand that our capacity to forgive is the fruit and not the root of our salvation. The fruit, not the root of our salvation. See, one way that, that we can know if we have experienced God's forgiveness is that we are becoming grace-filled, forgiving people ourselves. Hard hearts have no place in the kingdom of God. If we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. And the reason, of course, is that the king himself is a forgiving king. As, as he forgives us when we rebel against him, so the citizens of God's kingdom forgive one another. It's simply impossible to genuinely experience the fullness and richness of God's grace and remain a stubborn, obstinate, cold-hearted, yucky person. Those who truly know the forgiveness of sins forgive others. One thing I've observed about really mature Christians, people who are way beyond me in their spiritual advancement, is that they are humble people because they've lived long enough to understand their own brokenness and their own sin and how much God has forgiven them. Growth in the Christian life begins with the grace of God, but we become increasingly gracious people. What Jesus is affirming in these words is that when we experience God's forgiveness, then we are fundamentally transformed into forgiving people. See, the first indicator that that first servant in the, in the parable didn't get what he'd been forgiven is he said, I'll, I'll pay it back, just be patient. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the proof that you and I have been forgiven is that we forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive somebody else, we're making a mistake. We've never been forgiven. The man who knows he has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others. He cannot help himself. If we really know Christ as our Savior, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard and we cannot refuse forgiveness. Now imagine for a moment that it was otherwise. Imagine that our forgiveness was the root of our salvation. That would make this the most terrifying line of the entire prayer, and in fact the most terrifying line of the entire Bible perhaps. 
Why? Because if this was taken literally and God forgave me in exact proportion to the way in which I extend forgiveness to people who have offended me, I would be in deep trouble. I know that I haven't even approximated the graciousness of God uh, in forgiving others in my life. If God provides forgiveness for me only to the, degree, to the degree that I'm willing to provide it to others, I'm toast. Now here's the point. Once our eyes are opened to see the, the hopeless enormity of our offense against God, the offenses others have done against us will appear incredibly small by comparison. That's why it's so important that we always keep our eyes on the cross. That's why important, so it's so important that we come to the table of the Lord regularly to be reminded. A pastor friend of mine says, it's good that you do communion every week because a church that does communion every week can't have crabby people in it. <laughs> but if we allow ourselves to take an exaggerated view of the, the offenses of others against us, if, if we just kind of allow that to grow in our minds and it becomes this huge thing, we can say, I can never forgive them. What we've also done on the other end is minimized our own sin. We said, well, you're a way bigger sinner than I am. Wrong. See, the heart that doesn't forgive will not be forgiven for this reason because it reveals that we have no idea of the infinite debt that we owe God, the debt that he's been willing to completely forgive. Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Ephesus, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. One last thought, and I'll close with this. You and I will never sustain an offense greater than than the countless offenses for which Christ has fully and finally forgiven us. You will never sustain an offense greater than the countless offenses for which Christ has fully and finally forgiven you. Prophet Isaiah wrote regarding Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on him, the iniquity of us all. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he ate the Passover meal with them. And during the meal, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we commemorate, and that's what we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. And that's why it's so important for each of us, before we come to the table, to forgive from the heart anyone who has sinned against us, to take stock of our own sins against the Lord.
So let me ask you in closing, have you received the, the gift of forgiveness that Christ offers to you? Have, have you ever come to that point in your life where you've just said, I accept, God, what, what you offer me through Jesus Christ because of the cross, because he bore my sins. He, he took my sins in his own body and took them to the cross. I accept your gift of forgiveness. Have you received the forgiveness of the sin debt that you owe to God? For those of you who have done that, let me ask you, are you becoming a a more gracious, more humble, more forgiving person? Who do you know that you need to forgive today? Who is there with whom you need to do that relational family house cleaning? so that you're not carrying around the weight of unforgiveness? Are you ready in full view of the grace poured out on you through the cross to release them from the debt that you've been holding over their head? I hope you'll reflect on those questions this week. And as we come to the table and as we sing this next song together, let's bow together in prayer. Lord, in reality, we we will never be able to begin to understand the, the full magnitude of the debt that we owed you. But Lord, let us be self honest. Let us examine ourselves. Lord, would you assist us in that process? Would you search us and know us? Would you reveal to us anything within us that is offensive to you, that needs to be confessed, that needs to be repented of? And Lord, would you bring about a revolution of forgiveness in our own relationships, in in all of our relationships within this church, that we would be one, that we'd be unified in Christ. And no root of bitterness would, would be allowed to spring up among us, poison the whole church. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you gave your body. Thank you that you shed your blood. Lord, make us like you, we pray in Jesus' name.